Our shells clacked on the plates. My tongue was a filling estuary. My palate hung with starlight. As I tasted the salty flaities, Orion dipped his foot into the water, alive and violated. They lay on their bed of ice, bivalves, the split bulb, and philandering sigh of ocean, millions of them ripped and sucked and scattered. Hi, this is the Food on the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Hi, I'm JP McMahon, and welcome to the second edition of the Food on the Edge podcast. Today, we're talking about oysters, how they're connected to Ireland and their rich history. And I'm here with Shamak again, who has some uh, interesting questions. Hello. We started with a beautiful poem, and first question, obviously, very basic one. What type of oysters do we have in Ireland? Or is it in Ireland or in general? In, in general. I mean, we have more, I suppose, in general. I don't have a, a number. Um, there's six or seven probably key oysters all over the world. We have two in Ireland. One is the what they call the European flat oyster, or as we, we call it the native oyster. And the other is the, the Pacific oyster, which came from the Pacific. Um, but that was introduced in Ireland in around the 60s because of a lot of um, diseases that the European oyster was uh, was being affected with. But that wasn't just in Ireland, that was uh, in England and in, in a lot of different places. But by and large, throughout our history, we have, um, we have eaten the, the native oyster certainly since um, the Bronze Age in terms of archaeology but other um, people would argue that the first people that came to Ireland 10,000 years ago about 8,000 BC would have had access to oysters and other shellfish and unfortunately I suppose for me when I was growing up the shellfish was something well a it was associated with luxury and b it was something that was um not so common in everyday life because people were very squeamish about it and they say oh i don't like eating live oysters or i don't like eating uh, i suppose anything live from the sea and we didn't really have that culture um when i was growing up but again that's not to say we never had it and the way that they eat the, the traditional way of eating oysters which is just to open them up and eat them live uh, for me which is is the nicest way that had been taken over by and large a lot of different methods of cooking oysters which for me is, is a contradictory way of eating them whether you grill them or put breadcrumbs on them or deep fry them and I, there's a, I came across a, a recipe in a, an Irish recipe book someone's aristocratic house from the 18th century and it was it was oysters deep fried in, in beef dripping so the oyster probably wouldn't have tasted of much oyster because it was floured and fried in, in beef fat so the oysters are very very good for you they're very very high in protein so of course if people have access to them they will eat them if they don't have access to the land and so seafood it does have that association not just in ireland but it has an association with poverty for a long long time up to the 20th century there's a lot of different um different irish phrases such as uh, a be a bucked which is like the poor mouth and that was the the seafood was for the people with poor mouths, and that was that that was the case also in um, uh, also in North America and in England. I mean, poor people ate seafood because they had no access to land, and that was only by the coast. If you were inland, then you probably had uh, your diet was probably less rich because the last podcast we did was was talking about seaweed, and if you look back into history. And you look at, say, the people of the west of Ireland, the people on the Iron Islands, shellfish and seaweed were two things that they could eat for free 
if they had access to them, they could get them, and they could, and I suppose uh, whole uh, populations on the coast sustain themselves with that. So, like we were talking last time, uh, you think that seafood in general was abandoned because it was associated with. Uh being poor like certainly certainly that that's one thing yeah this goes all the way back to the advent of of farming in ireland but also like everywhere so there is an argument that pre-farming which is what neolithic about six thousand years ago uh, if you analyze um bodies that they find um the diet turns from the sea towards the land and i suppose because as a hunter or gatherer going to england or ireland most of the villages or not sorry, they weren't even villages, campsites 10,000 years ago or 8,000 years ago were all located by water. They were, like every single major, even most major towns now, you look at London, you look at Dublin, uh, you look at Galway, Cork, Limerick, they're all located on water. And with the advent of farming, people turned away from the sea to a certain degree and their diet changed. So the diet turned from a diet that had had more seafood to a diet that had animal protein and cereal because I suppose cereal could be grown systematically and it could feed a lot of people systematically so seafood had to be had you had to go and pick it and it was wild therefore it was there sometimes it wasn't there sometimes you could run out of it there could be diseases so I suppose farming as one historian says like was best and the worst thing that ever happened to humanity because it set us free in the sense that we no longer depended on wild food and um, we could we didn't have to wander about anymore but saying that it was also the worst thing because the population expanded and therefore if you had a, a famine and your your crop failed everybody died and that's like the history of, of humanity is one of a history of a series of famines going all the way up to I suppose China in the 20th century when the agriculture failed and everybody starved because to a certain degree we suppose threw the baby out with the bat water and we left that kind of access to wild food and we can't just go back and get it you know it's there is like thousands of years of knowledge in terms of the knowing what to eat what not to eat how to hunt yeah how to hunt and we can try and learn that now but we go hunting now for like on a for like a couple of days a year just for for sport and even the word game which is the english word associated with them um, with hunting was about the the game of hunting it was about going out on your horse and hunting and wild food to a certain degree was associated with poverty. If you couldn't grow your own food, you had to go and pick it and you had to go and search through the hedge, almost like homeless people today going through the bins. You had to go and look for your food in the bushes. And I know one forager in, in Offaly said that to me, said when she was growing up in the 60s and 70s, there was a stigma. To, if you told someone you picked food, they would say, why? You can go to the supermarket and buy it. And that goes all the way back, and particularly because for the, the last six or seven hundred years, indigenous Irish population was dispossessed of its land. So therefore it didn't have access to land. Therefore it had to have access to, uh, to these things. But that's not to say, I mean, sometimes we're blinded in, um, with Irish history, thinking that the last 800 years represents the entirety of the history of people in Ireland. And I mean, as I said, people have been in Ireland 10,000 years and the Irish people or people in Ireland have, have dispossessed other people in Ireland going for 8,000 years and there is an argument that when the farming the farming people came over that they dispossessed all the hunter-gatherers and, and whether or not they had, a, they had a war or whether or not they just brought them into their way of being we don't know but the, what we do know is that with the advent of farming one attitude went out and that attitude was associated with hunting and picking seafood and the other one came in now that's not to say it disappears it's still it's still there all throughout 
um, Irish history in coastal communities and they have discovered loads and loads of little midden beds which are like ancient dustbins where just people threw all their shells and find little marks of fires with, where people just built a fire and put an oyster into the fire and then it would open so that's just a, I suppose a very primitive way of cooking an oyster and it's probably still the nicest way of cooking it Could you tell me something about oysters habitat where they uh, leave where we can find them Yeah there are some oysters usually oysters grow in, in bays a lot of times they grow in what you call like brackish water. I mean, uh, shellfish works well in, in a lot of brackish water, which is where the sea meets the river. And you have a kind of uh, a salty water, but it's not as salty as the, as the sea. So these bays or inlets, generally the temperature is a bit higher in the water because it's protected. So for thousands of years, oysters have, have grown without any human intervention at all. And we would have picked them with your hands or as technology developed with, with some sort of like rakes or some sort of scoop to bring them out. When the tide is out, I mean, it's generally when you can find a lot of oysters on the rocks. Wild oyster will usually um, locate itself somewhere where the tide comes in and out. Oysters are, are natural feeders in the sense that they just, they, when they open them out, they just drag uh, water in and they actually clean water as they um, they feed on plankton and little small things. Ireland is uniquely situated because it has some very, very good bays. Um, you have like Dungarvan, which is like down by Waterford. You have Galway Bay. You have a lot of little bays in Connemara. You've got some bays over by Carlingford up north as well. So there's a lot of places now where we have the production of um, of oysters that have, would have been historic sites where oysters would have been um, picked and, um, and reared. And as I said, when the Pacific oyster came in in the 60s, that kind of took over to a certain degree. And and some people argue that like it's not a good thing because we always have a, an association with the words native and indigenous as if they're like better than than other things. But I mean if the Pacific oyster is here long enough, I mean how long do you have to be somewhere before you become native or become indigenous? Is it like a couple of hundred years, a couple of thousand years? So it's like is the native oyster native? I mean when did that get here? So um, it's an interesting uh, thing to think about and the Pacific oyster is just a, a different type of oyster in the sense that it grows quicker, it can be farmed, it produces itself in about, I think about two years, whereas the native oyster could take three to five years. I know in some places in France, they don't pick the European flat oysters before five years. So that makes them more expensive, it makes them more, um, I suppose, difficult to harvest because it's a wild oyster. So even out in, in Kelly's oysters down in, in County Clare, like when they go out and harvest the wild ones, they're harvesting wild food. It's not like a systematic way of farming. You have to just go and find them, you know? And and of course they manage them so they make sure that between the months of May and August that no one touches the oysters and that's those summer months are when the oysters start to reproduce and and they give them a chance to uh, grow and that's I suppose enshrined in law so now that you can't sell native oysters in that period and that's the same for the UK as well because the the, the shellfish was being overfished and it, I suppose if, if it had continued they would have run out now you do have the thing with most shellfish people always said not to eat shellfish in a month that had no ore so traditionally you have september to april where you eat your shellfish and then you stop eating it and there's a few reasons for that and one is because of the the shellfish is producing itself during the summer but the probably the more common one is that during the summer the temperature is higher and you probably have more frequent spoilage when the shellfish is warmer and eating bad shellfish is something that is um is not very good 
for you. If anyone's ever eaten um, a bad mussel or a, a bad oyster, it's a very severe form of food poisoning. And maybe that's another reason why you could say during the 20th century, people were a little bit squeamish about, about eating shellfish. Because unless it was super fresh and you live by the coast, then how old was it? Was it good? Was it bad? It's not, you can't, sometimes you can't smell it, that badness, sometimes you can. So, and that's probably another reason why, I, mean, I don't remember my grandparents ever eaten and the, both of them lived by the coast. But again, I think it was that association with um, with harvesting your own food or things from the sea, you know, and um, those things having to be eaten out of necessity, seaweed and oysters. Let's talk about ecology and oysters now. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. We, we spoke a little bit about the way oysters are kind of natural feeders and they're natural cleaners. If you put enough oysters in a bay, they can actually clean the bay. They can clean the pollutants out of it. And that's why we need to kind of purge them when you take them out. And that's, I suppose, an important pro part of um, oyster farming that I don't think people realize, that, that you don't just take the oyster out and then, and then sell it. You need to purge them and you need to put them in a tank where sterilized water Water is filtered through them so therefore when you get them they don't have the seawater or they don't have the contaminants and in the 19th century in North America which is where most of the oysters in the 19th century came from they literally millions and millions of oysters and they would clean the whole bay up near Maine and the, I came across an interesting fact is that what they did now in a few months back then would take years and years now because there's no oysters left uh, because well a we, we they were overfished and um, and b the the industrial revolution had a big impact on oysters and I think that to a certain degree how oysters became a luxury food plays into that because oysters became more and more scarce um, because the water was being polluted by the industries and the industries were always located near water they needed water and so you had um, a lot of pollution. So oysters are really, really important for ecology. And I think particularly in Ireland with uh, places where you can get the native oysters, I mean, I think they're, they're really important parts of our, of our heritage. And I think we need to protect them in the same way that we protect our monuments like Newgrange or Dublin Castle, or like we need to protect our oyster base. And we're lucky that we still have a number of grade A bays in Ireland. And Nathan Outlaw was telling me that there are none left in England. There are only grade B. Now, grade B is still very, very, very good. But grade A is fantastic. And we have, I think, five or six grade A in Ireland. And like, we really need to protect those bays because if we don't, then we lose not only a resource and uh, access to food, but we also lose uh, something that, uh, that I suppose connects us to our, to our past. So let's clarify this. Uh Do they disappear because of the pollution? They, they disappear because of pollution, I suppose, and we eat them, you know? And also, I suppose, because if you were literally, the reason why Pacific oysters came in, people argue, is that if we hadn't brought them in, then we would have no native oysters left because we would have just kept eating the native oyster. And the native oyster takes three to five years to grow. If you don't plan and you don't leave the smaller ones for another year or another year, then they're just all gone. They also have that problem in France. Where, and, and also, I suppose, the pollution is one thing, overfishing is another, but also diseases. And, and oysters are susceptible to, to certain diseases. And if the oyster gets a disease, almost like the plague, then it, it kills the entire batch. Now, sometimes these diseases came naturally, but sometimes they came about because other oysters were introduced to an area I know this happened, I think, in North America, where they were running out of a, one particular oyster and they introduced another one, and that brought with it 
certain contaminants that the, the, the local population couldn't deal with. A bit like the colonization of Mexico, the smallpox, typhoid, all those things that the native population had never encountered before and then they all died. And so uh, these are the difficulties. So how should we prepare and serve oysters? Well, as I said, I think oysters raw are probably the, the nicest way of, um, of eating them. So they call it uh, shucking an oyster. You need a special oyster knife to, to open them. Um, you open them from the back and then you need to just kind of snip the, the little valve that keeps the shell together. And um, I think eating the oyster with its, with its little bit of liquor or the little bit of oyster juice, for me, is probably the nicest way of, of tasting the oyster. A lot of people like to use lemon with them for, this, for natural acidity. The, I know the French have a kind of reduction of uh, shallots and red wine vinegar for them again, again, bringing, bringing a little bit of acidity. In an ear, we, we like to, we make a little seaweed vinegar to, because uh, I think bringing that seaweed taste in. And also I think sometimes for me, we, we overuse lemons in, in, in everything associated with fish. And then really what happens is you start to only taste the fish or have the, the idea in your head that the fish just tastes nice when it's lemony and we, and, and we forget about that. Oysters are kind of naturally salty, but as I said, because they're purified, they're not as salty as if you were to take um, a wild oyster out of the sea and eat it. Other ways you can steam them just until they open and they pop open and cooking an oyster for 30, 30 seconds to 60 seconds. You can drop it into boiling water or you can put it in the oven if you have a steam, but really you don't want to cook it too much after that. Like they're not, oyster is, um, is I suppose pure muscle. So it doesn't have any fat in it um, or has very, very little fat. So you can't like cook it too much. Traditional ways of, I suppose, oysters Rockefeller and oysters, um, there's quite a few uh, people have associated themselves with different oysters with breadcrumbs and cheese and grilling. For me, I think that a lot of that takes away from the oyster. I think the nicest way to eat it is to season it very, very lightly and then to bring other elements of the sea, whether it's seaweed or sea herbs or things like that. And I think to try, we need to try and get back to that because most of the time when we present oysters to people, we always present them and then we bring a bit of the land in, whether it's the onions in the vinegar or it's... Um, it's cheese or spinach or, 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 or any sort of way. But I think eating them naturally, we, we do actually have a, um, our beef and uh, beef and oyster pie is actually something that, that was eaten in Ireland and in the British Isles in, in general for, for, uh, for a long, long time. I think they actually, they still, I don't know if they still serve it in Ballymaloo, but they, they certainly still teach people how to eat it. And again, it's making a beef pie and putting oysters into it. And, uh, and it's quite, a, I suppose, a, a decadent thing to eat. I think because of the heaviness of it, it probably points to a different time of um, a different period of cooking. And it's not to say it's it's not an enjoyable thing, but for me, eating the oyster fresh and raw is probably the, the, the most eloquent thing to do. And, and that also, not only about eating it and putting it into our mouth, but throughout history, that is the, the way people would have eaten oysters traditionally, whether it was the, the ancient Irish, it was the Romans or the Greeks or any of the other populations. And eating them like that, I think, connects us to a, a tradition of eating them. Um, and I think that's important to remember when you're eating it. You're not only just putting stuff in your mouth because you're hungry, you're putting stuff in your mouth and you're connecting with culture. Everything you eat is cultural and it's an unconscious choice. Sometimes you pick up something and you, uh, you eat it. Sometimes it's branded and you know it's a cultural thing. But I suppose the, the oyster is, is, a, is a branded thing in terms of food history. You spoke earlier about middenbeds. What's their significance? Middenbeds are very significant for archaeologists because they teach us 
about how other cultures ate and effectively it's an ancient dustbin um, it's heaps of discarded shells and bones and bits of burnt wood that have been buried or have been uh, almost fossilized into the into the side of the rocks and if you go down to any of the Irish beaches you can find fossilized shells on the rocks or you can find them sometimes on keystones where there's someone has built a key along the estuary and you'll you'll find the little markings and sometimes they're periwinkle marks sometimes they're they're um, they're oyster marks but the midden beds are, are a really important way of identifying not only what we ate but where we ate um, and also how we ate so for me they're a very significant thing to uh to teach us about kind of early irish food culture We had driven to that coast through flowers and limestone, and there we were, toasting friendship, laying down a perfect memory in the cool of thatch and crockery. Hopefully everybody knows that we're in Galway and there is an um, annual Oysters Festival in Galway. And I was wondering, why do we celebrate oysters at all? Um, I suppose we're very good as, as people at celebrating things and having excuses to celebrate things and I suppose oyster festivals traditionally happen in September, October when the harvest begins again. So I suppose it's very similar to having a, a harvest at them when, the, when you finished picking the, the grapes or you finished harvesting the crops. And um, I, I think it's because it's so associated with food that I think we over the years have marked the year with different celebrations of uh, of food at the beginning of the season, the end of the season. Um, and the Oyster Festival, the Clarenbridge Oyster Festival, which I think is the is the oldest oyster festival in the world. Um, we have two oyster festivals now in Galway. We have the Clarenbridge Oyster Festival and then we have the Galway Oyster Festival. The Clarenbridge one, I suppose, was associated with the native oyster, with the celebration of the native oyster. The Galway Oyster Festival was, for me, I suppose, a celebration of the oyster. And traditionally, we do have native oysters at the Galway Oyster Festival. Always we have Kelly's, Kelly's oysters. But we also have a lot of Pacific oysters. But I think, I mean, again, you can go ask Dermot Kelly about this, but the Clarenbridge Oyster Festival was associated with the celebration of the, the new harvest of the native oyster. And that's the same in a lot of oyster festivals in England and a lot of oyster festivals in North America. And North America, I think, on the East Coast and the West Coast have quite a few uh, different oysters. So, but I think it was just a way of celebrating them. I think also, I mean, nowadays, it's a way for people to try oysters and have oysters and it's a time where people come to Galway and go it's the oyster festival let's eat some oysters and traditionally they're associated with stout and Guinness and we mentioned already the pie and oysters and stout again have a certain working relationship oysters stout coming from barley it does work the downside of it is sometimes people come to eat oysters and drink stout for that period and then don't go near them for the whole year after that and then associate the oysters just with that time so a little bit like and this goes back to the poor mouth that when I was growing up you had seafood on Fridays and I don't know if it was the same in, in, in Poland because Friday was a no meat day we were a Catholic country you had fish on a Friday and what happened was that then people started to eat fish on a Friday associated with penance poverty and then not eat it at all for the rest of the week or only eat it during Lent. And I think that's the downside of it. It's wonderful that we have a day for eating fish or we have a, a, um, a weekend for eating oysters. But really, I think the important thing is to celebrate the oyster 
during a festival, but then just remember that that the, it's just the start of the season and that we should really be eating the best time for our shellfish is when the waters are a little bit cooler. So September all the way to April. And that goes for oysters, it goes for mussels, it goes for sea urchins as well. And the, the, the tragedy is that, I suppose as always, we export more oysters than we eat. We export more beef than we eat. We export more sea urchins than we eat. But particularly, I mean, we eat enough beef in the country as well, particularly in relation to oysters and, and sea urchins. And we export, um, oysters to to asia to uh, the middle east to the americas like we feed the world we're a little production uh, vessel in ireland and we need to i suppose get a little bit better at eating or we need to bring our level of eating up to our level of production and and try and appreciate these things because a lot of the say oysters that um, they get in France, begin their life in, in Ireland, and they've, they're finished in French waters, you know, and um, and then sometimes they're not branded. So this is, uh, is, I think, something that we need to change, but something we are changing, just that we need to, I suppose, brand our different products and associate them with different areas. So where we have the, um, a lot of different oyster companies in the west of Ireland, you have Kelly's, Flaggy Shore, Dune Castle, and they're all, I think for me, once you travel 50 kilometers, the oyster tastes different again. And, and that's another reason why we should have more celebrations of them. You mentioned earlier that oysters are associated with poverty now. So when and how they became a luxury? I think in, for me, it's, a, it's probably in around, somewhere in around the 1920s, the 1930s, when oysters were, I suppose, appropriated by the upper classes. And generally when we, when we think of luxurious events that have champagne and caviar, oysters always come in there. And that's wonderful for the oyster because it increases its value and they're a very, very difficult thing to, to farm. But before that, oysters were something that you would sell on the, on the street. Um, you sell your cockles and your mussels and your oysters, you drag your little cart around town. And uh, Mark Kolansky, who's a, who's a food writer, has a book called um, The Big Oyster, and it's a history of New York through the oyster. And he details this about how it, it gradually became something that wasn't uh, associated with the poor and something that was only associated with, with them, the rich. And I think because of this, this association, less people eat it during the year now. Than, than, than they would have. Because now it has been something that, well, you only have, you only eat oysters when, like, there's a celebration of them, there's a festival, there's a holiday, you're, you're at a seaside town. And really oysters should be part of our every day. We should be able to have places where you can pop in and, and, um, and, and, uh, and get an oyster. And, and I, I think, it's, I think it's, it's, it's probably shifting slightly now where oysters are becoming, again, more of the, the general, consciousness with um, with everyone. You could argue that we people have a better quality of life now, so perhaps that is so. But certainly the shift to it becoming a luxury food, I think one of the, the major events is the, the Industrial Revolution. I think that's what Kurlansky argues, is that you had the, um, the bays in New York, Maine, and they, they were decimated. And then if you have less of something, it becomes more expensive. The same with sturgeon caviar. The sturgeon caviar, which is probably one of the most expensive products in the world now, was something the poor, it's, it's fish eggs, and the poor would have eaten it. And now it is an absolute luxury product. I do think as well that you have aristocratic culture, particularly I mean, Russian um, culture 
before the Russian Revolution, adopted different things and, and made them part of their own. And, and, and by doing that, they take it away from its, its normal setting. So if, the, I mean the, if they bring caviar into, into the, the palaces, then that's already that has separated it from the everyday. And, and probably maybe someone just decided in then downtown Manhattan that they wanted to open an oyster bar and have, um, have champagne and, uh, and, and make it exclusive. And that trend um, just, uh, I suppose, uh, fed into other trends. I suppose it, it's, it's, it's a combination, I think, of, of environmental measures or environmental happenings and, and cultural happenings. How can we bring oysters back to our everyday life in Ireland? I think that's, that's, that's a good question because, again, as we said, we celebrate oysters a few times a year. We export massive amounts of them and I think we need to spend a little bit more time eating them and uh, I suppose and thinking about them and, and that was one of the reasons behind our recent cafe and wine bar tartare. I wanted to put oysters, we have oysters and tartare on the menu, beef tartare. I wanted to put them on the menu all day with other things like sandwiches and soup and salads so people could come in and have the opportunity just to eat three oysters. And we have three different oysters from, from three different places in the west of Ireland. To, just to experience them. Because I suppose still, if you want to find an oyster in Ireland, generally you have to go to a restaurant, okay? We're, we're not so good at having like an oyster bar the way that you'd have it in, in New York or London. Now, of course, you have 10 million people, 20 million people. It's easier to do that when you can go in and sample 12 different oysters. I remember having uh, oysters in, in New York once and I had 12 different oysters from 12 different places all over America and I, I, on a bed of ice. And I think for me, that's the most phenomenal thing that you can do when you're eating, like you're, you're enjoying yourself, but you're also tasting 12 different places. And now, of course, we're in Galway. We have a population of 80 to 100,000. We have a lot of tourists in the summer. I wanted to try and craft a space where people would be able to just have an oyster and have a glass of wine or have a beer. Um, and I think that's one way that we can do it. I think more restaurants and more bars can do that. And, and a lot of bars do it during the festival. A lot of bars bring oysters in for the weekend and they do Guinness and oysters. But why not do it every weekend, do you know? We're terrible for giving people free cocktail sausages when they come into bars. And I think what we can do is, is, is try and work time in, that we can use the oysters as a way of selling other things, but also a way of getting people to, to enjoy them. I think also that traditional restaurants or restaurants need to use oysters in, in more inventive ways and create different dishes. And this, like we, I spoke about eating them raw and that's wonderful, but oysters can be dressed lightly. They can be served in a little salad, like almost like a chaviche, like, a, like a, the Peruvian kind of cured fish dish. There's a lot of things that oysters go with. And um, I think that we, we, we don't make enough effort in Ireland to put them on our menus. Oysters are rather a rare example of food widely represented in the literature. Could you tell us something more about it? Yeah, well, for, for some reason or other, a lot, of, a lot of writers like to use oysters in their work, sometimes as metaphors. And I think the, the Heaney poem that, that we've been reading is, uh, is a good example of that. The poem I suppose, speaks of celebration, but it also speaks of um, ways to tie us to our past. But from, I think from Roman times, and, and perhaps from earlier times, uh, but certainly from Roman times, you have a lot of different writers talking about them. The Roman philosopher uh, Seneca, 
said, um, wrote about them. He said that uh, oysters excite instead of satisfying the appetite, never causing indisposition, not even when eaten to excess. And then the Romans enjoyed eating to excess. They had their vomitoriums where they could uh, relieve themselves. But you can you can go from that to Woody Allen, who said, uh, I will not eat oysters. I want my food dead, not sick, not wounded, dead. So, I mean, of course, uh, Woody Allen is about tongue in cheek about it. But I think I, I love to read about about oysters, particularly in uh, when people write about them. And you have um, Alfred J. Bellows, who wrote a book called The Philosophy of Eating in uh, 1867. And he said, oysters are very unsatisfactory food for the laboring men, but will do for the sedentary and for a supper to sleep on. And you have this association with oysters and as a, an aphrodisiac and as uh, as something sexual, and we, we'll, uh, we'll get on to that. But and maybe that's another reason why oysters became associated with the, the luxury, with luxurious uh, things and with the rich. And um, I think Bellows there writing, saying that, well, you shouldn't give oysters to, to people because they'll make them fall asleep and they'll, um, they'll tire them out. There is no end to, I suppose, writing and uh, and talking about it. You have a quote from Shakespeare, Joyce's Ulysses is full of oysters um, and it's full of eating in general, but it's certainly, there's certainly plenty of um, mentions of the oyster. So I think no matter where one is, if one is on an island such as Ireland or in a coastal community where oysters were eaten, you generally have the writers of those areas of talking about them, you know. The, I just see another interesting quote there actually by a Roman historian, again, associating associating orders with the poor, but also with, uh, with their goodness, saying that the poor Britons, there was some good in them after all, they produced an oyster. So that's uh, some uh, smart Roman historian uh, that, um, again, saying that, look, oysters are, are really, really good. I just want to finish up this section with a quote from Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway was a great, I suppose, European writer and a great writer of the, of the people, but he was also very, very good at describing eating. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do when you put something in your mouth and then try and talk about what's happening, how it makes you, uh, how it makes you feel. And in his essay, A Movable Feast, he says, as I ate the oysters with their strong taste of the sea and their faint metallic taste at the cold white wine washed away, leaving only the sea taste and the succulent texture. And as I drank their cold liquid from each shell and washed it down with the crisp taste of wine, I lost the empty feeling and began to be happy and to make plans. That's pretty accurate. That's fairly good. E eat more oysters. So obviously we have to mention oysters as an aphrodisiac. Absolutely. And uh, as Jonathan Swift said, he was a bold man that first ate an oyster. And so what does Swift mean by that? We can only imagine, but many writers have uh, made reference to the resemblance between the oyster and the female genitalia. That, that is out there um, for many, many thousands of years. The Romans, knew of it and the, and the Greeks. But I have a wonderful quote here by, by, a, by a Galway man, a Galway oyster, oyster man who was, uh, who was working. And on his wedding night, he said he ate a dozen oysters on his wedding night and only six worked. Now he said one of them couldn't have been from Galway. So it wasn't a real Galway Bay oyster, the one that didn't work. So, and that's, that's I think that's a lovely mention in, in, uh, in literature, but oysters have always had this association with, with, with sex. And I don't know if it's because of their rawness and their succulence and the way they look, the way they taste. There's, there's many, many different ways of interpreting it. But I think being bound up with sex and, and literature 
and luxury is probably something that um, ties them in this area of our consciousness. And again, maybe that's, as I suppose, as a God-fearing Catholic country, we didn't want to eat them, you know, because we would uh, become too horny and have too much fun. And fun and food is probably something that... And even more kids. Even more children. Well, we didn't need any more children. Maybe that's why we stopped eating oysters. But uh, yeah, I mean, oysters, I think, are a very pleasurable thing to eat. And I think that's why we should eat more of them. So let's finish with uh, the last part of poem by... By Seamus Heaney. Wonderful poem about his philandering years. Heaney liked pleasure, and uh, I think he speaks of it here. Over the Alps, packed deep in hay and snow, the Romans hauled their oysters south to Rome. I saw damp panniers disgorge the frond-lipped brine-stung glut of privilege and was angry that my trust could not repose in the clear light, like poetry or freedom leaning in from the sea. I ate the day deliberately that its tang might quicken me all into verb, pure verb. You can follow us at Food on the Edge on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook where you'll see more updates for more podcasts. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm JP McMahon. And I'm Shamak Brosh. And that was the Food on the Edge podcast.